Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have two brand new movies to review for you. One is about a week old, or maybe a little older than that, but it's uh, one of those movies that's on a streaming platform, which I'll reveal later on in the show, but it's not that streaming platform's original. But it was the newest movie I could find on such short notice, and it seems to be one of these weekends that's before a big holiday weekend like Memorial Day or the 4th of July. Uh, Movie theaters, or particularly even streaming platforms, don't seem to release big movies. They just kind of hold off and then bring the either big movie or big movies on the holiday weekend. So next weekend is going to be Memorial Day weekend. So I didn't have too many options this weekend. Even on Netflix, there weren't very many originals. But there was one original that premiered on Friday, May 21st, 2021. And that movie is the first one I'll be reviewing for you for this show. Army of the Dead. It is a zombie heist film, and I don't know if there are any other zombie heist films that exist in motion picture history, but Army of the Dead, if it's not the only one, it's one of the only ones, and it is directed by Zack Snyder, and Zack Snyder is no stranger to those people who go to the movies often because he has played an instrumental role in adapting several movies, or rather, adapting several stories that were previously in comic books into movies. But he first came on the movie scene by directing the remake in 2004 of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. He went on to direct the very well-received movie 300, which was not only based on real events, but was also based on a graphic novel that was written and drawn by the same person who did Sin City, a Frank Miller. I just blanked on his name for a minute. He also went on to direct Watchmen, which was marginally well-received. And he also directed a few movies in the DC Extended Universe, including but not limited to Man of Steel, which I have not seen, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, which I have seen, and that was pretty good. And also the not-quite-as-well-received Justice League. But he's back to his zombie roots here in Army of the Dead, where, in a world where there is a zombie outbreak in Las Vegas, a group of mercenaries led by a guy by the name of Scott Ward, who's played by Dave Bautista, take the ultimate gamble venturing into the quarantine zone to pull off the greatest heist ever attempted. So the movie starts off by showing Las Vegas being taken over by zombies. And the movie starts off with a montage showing Las Vegas getting gradually more and more infested by zombies, so much so that the government intervenes by blocking the whole city of Las Vegas off. And this is just in the first five minutes of the movie. What was disappointing to me was 
the zombie infestation of Las Vegas alone would have made a great movie. Instead, it was just, okay, a zombie outbreak happened. I mean, they, they say exactly how it happens, but they just put it into this very brief montage. And as I'm watching these people try to survive in Las Vegas, some of the scenes are very funny. Some are actually surprisingly dramatic. I began thinking, why was this not the movie? Now, I will say that get, having a <clears throat> excuse me, a zombie heist film where people go into zombie-infested Las Vegas to get this whole boatload of cash, that's a good premise on its own. But I would have rather seen that as the sequel than the original movie. But that's what we got started here. So anyway, Dave Bautista plays a guy who I think used to be a federal agent, and he is now working as a short-order cook outside of Las Vegas. But a very wealthy businessman makes him an offer he really can't refuse to go into a certain vault in Las Vegas, open it up, take all the cash inside, and get out of Las Vegas before the U.S. government literally drops an atomic bomb on Las Vegas, killing all the zombies inside. So that's already a really good premise, and I did like how the team he assembles to pull this heist off is diverse. Like, for instance, he has his daughter, Kate, who's played by Ella Purnell, who is a British actress who a lot of people, particularly movie-going people, might remember as playing Emma from Tim Burton's Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which was a very good movie, and she was good in it. Here, I think she was just kind of relegated to the typical uh, daughter role, but you also have other people who are assisting in this heist, including one um, person who is assigned to unlock the safe, whose name is Dieter, and he's played by Matthias, his, his last name is German, so I'm going to give this my best shot, uh, Schwigelfer. I hope that was, um, I, I hope that was correct. Uh, I'm not German, at least not as far as I know, but that's my best shot at it. And there are others too, but honestly, the premise is very good, but this movie is just under two and a half hours. And as I was watching this, first of all, I fell asleep during some moments of it. But also, I thought that if they cut an hour out of this movie, it would have been okay. What the hell took these people so long to go in, get the cash, and leave? Now, honest, now in reality, of course, this would take hours. But in the scope of a movie, you could probably fill in the blanks that the movie doesn't exactly tell you. There are also moments where they add some unnecessary drama that doesn't feel particularly unique or moving in this film. Instead, it just feels like watching somebody play a video game. There's very little character development, including with uh, Dave Bautista. And Dave Bautista is becoming a household name when it comes to action stars, particularly in his role as Drax in the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, movies, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as well as some other films he's been in recently, like Blade Runner 
2049, and My Spy. And also another one he did with Kumail Nanjiani, which was a buddy action comedy called Stuber. But in Stuber in particular, Dave Bautista showed a lot of personality. He wasn't just this tough guy. He also had some dimension to him. And in this film, I thought he was just relegated to, yes, a family man, particularly where he brings his daughter into zombie-infested Las Vegas. But also, he's, he's just a tough guy. And there's really no dimension to his character other than that. So maybe there are some people who are going on to Netflix just looking for a good zombie film. In that case, they may not be disappointed, but I did feel like for a movie that's two and a half hours long, there could have been a lot more dimension to some of these characters. Plus, to me, the action sequences, particularly when these people go into Las Vegas and kill as many zombies as they can, it it looked artificial. And yeah, I, I get that there aren't any zombies that we know of, or at least not any zombie-infested cities. But to me, again, this felt more like a video game movie than it did a, a original, or excuse me, an original uh, film. And also, you could have had a much more clever name for a movie about zombie-infested Las Vegas besides Army of the Dead. And again, it's not about the Army of the Dead either. It's about some mercenaries who go into Vegas and get as much cash as they can. They could have found a far more original title. And I was even trying to think of some original titles as I was watching this film. Of course, I couldn't get beyond what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But if I really put my brain to the grindstone, I probably could have come up with something a lot more clever than Army of the Dead. So Army of the Dead is a very standard action film. It has some impressive special effects, not with the zombies, but definitely with the uh, flying the helicopter into Las Vegas. I thought that was good. And they also had Tignataro in her first action role, and not in her usual comedy roles, playing the helicopter pilot. I thought she was probably one of the better actors and probably one of the most defined characters in this movie. But as for the rest of it, there are very poorly defined characters, and the movie did not have to be two and a half hours long. So Army of the Dead gets my rating of a strikeout. It might be fun to watch with friends on a Saturday night if you're not going out, particularly if you haven't been vaccinated yet, but it could have been so much more than the sum of its parts. But unfortunately, it wasn't, not even in the capable zombie-directing hands of Zack Snyder. That being said, it is slightly better than the DCEU movies he's directed, but really, that's not saying very much. Welcome back to Words on Film. 
spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is an Amazon Prime original called Pink, All I Know So Far. This is about the singer Pink and her 2019 world tour that ended in Wembley Stadium in London. That was kind of the the point the her last concert, the one to which she was working up. So, a little bit of background on Pink for those of you who don't know. She has been in the music industry for over 20 years, and that's particularly impressive Uh, Especially when you consider that she debuted in 2000 when the tide was shifting from people buying CDs at stores and downloading music off the internet. That was back when you could download it for free. It was a crime, but a lot of people did it, (laughs) including me. But she was born Alicia Beth Moore, uh, that's her real name, in Dolestown, Pennsylvania, and was later raised in Philadelphia. When she first came on the scene, she was known as Pink because she dyed her hair pink. She had her debut album, Can't Take Me Home, which which I think was a decent album. It wasn't a great album, but I think it's ter- in terms of it being a straight-out R&B album, it was pretty good. And she had songs like Real Love and There You Go, which put her on the scene. She definitely wasn't as big as Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera, but... She had a relatively auspicious debut. It was in 2001, however, when she came out with her album Misunderstood, which was produced by Linda Perry, the former lead singer of the Four Non Blondes, where she really went out of being a typical standard R&B singer and incorporated some rock and some techno elements into her songs, not to mention brutal honesty, that she really became... Uh, an artist that was particularly unique. And the truth is, even though she's had some albums that haven't done particularly well and others that have gone multi-platinum, she's still in the game, and that is really impressive. So a couple of weeks ago, I did did a review of another similar concert documentary called The Boy from Medellin. And it was about a reggaeton superstar by the name of Jay Balvin. And I gave that um, documentary my rating of a checkout, but acknowledging that before I saw the movie, I was not familiar with Jay Balvin, despite the fact that he is an international superstar. I am far more familiar with Pink. But what I did like about this film, what made it unique to me was that not only did it show the concert footage, but it wasn't entirely the concert. It also spent a great deal of time showing Pink's backstage life, particularly with her husband, who is a former X Games uh, superstar named Carrie Hart, and also her two children, her then eight-year-old daughter, Willow, and her son, who is then two-year-old, uh, two years old, Jameson. And it wasn't just one scene. Pink actually brings her husband and her two children, or brought, you know, back at this at this 2019 tour, which was called a Beautifully Tragic, with her to all these international cities. So her kids, and I'm going to say this in the nicest way possible, are kind of like army brats. 
I don't mean to say they are brat-like because they're actually typical kids, but they have to move around from town to town with their mother. And that can't be easy. But when you have the whole nuclear family unit together moving along, that probably makes it a lot easier. And I do actually think that it's a far better alternative than an artist going out on the road by his or herself. And for a lot of singers, particularly American singers that became international superstars, going as far back as Frank Sinatra or Nat King Cole, that was their only option. They had to go on the road themselves, and they had to leave their family behind. And that's only a few of the American music superstars. But I think Pink's situation may not be entirely unique, but it is unique from a documentary perspective. And I enjoyed seeing Pink interact with her family almost as much as I like to see her in concert. And it was great hearing a lot of those songs that I love, like Get This Party Started or Like a Pill. And those are some of her older songs. She's got a lot of newer songs that she sings in concert too. What I did not know because I've never seen pink in concert before was how elaborate her stages are. She actually gives Britney Spears a run for her money in terms of the elaboration of her sets. I mean, they're probably a lot like the, the sets and the special effects that Cher used on her world tours. But What I also didn't realize was that Pink actually, unlike Cher, takes part in some of the acrobatics and high-flying exercises that are incorporated into these shows. She actually gets up on these cables and literally flies all around the stadium. That's incredibly impressive to see her do this. And in fact, there's one really impressive shot where pink is actually rehearsing for a show at Wembley stadium. So nobody is in the stadium except for the tech people trying to make sure that everything is going okay with sound checks and with pyrotechnics and things like that. But she's flying everywhere on this cable. And this is something that not a lot of artists would do. If I was on tour I would be scared to death to do this kind of thing, but I got to give Pink a lot of credit, not only for being a great singer, but for also being a great performer. And that certainly says a lot for somebody who is her age. As a matter of fact, when this movie came out, she was 39 or 40. And the fact that she could still do this is really impressive. I would love to see Pink in concert, first of all. She's eventually going to come to Nashville. I know it. But I would also love to see her do this Cirque Soleil acrobatics like she does in Wembley Stadium. That would be incredibly impressive. But there is a lot to love about Pink, all I know so far. And I only have a limited time to talk about this movie. But I was very impressed with this movie, particularly because I am a fan of Pink. I have been for about 20 years, especially after the album Misunderstood. So I am giving this movie a knockout only because, well, not only because, but taking everything into consideration. I think that Pink 
tells her story to the camera, either by looking at the camera or not looking at the camera, very uniquely in a way that I have not seen any other musical artist do before. And I can't say the same about Jay Balvin, the star and the subject of The Boy from Medellin. I do have a lot of respect for Jay Balvin, but in terms of a movie experience, I do think that Pink, All I Know So Far, I think is a better documentary, but I do acknowledge the bias that I am far more familiar with Pink than I wa- than I am or was with Jay Balvin. But it is a good documentary. It A lot of it is a lot of fun. Some of it is very impressive, not only what Pink does, but also the cinematography behind the documentary. So I really can't say anything bad about this documentary, Pink, all I know so far. All I know is I was very impressed. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is MLK FBI. This is a movie that I found, it's a documentary on Hulu, but it is not a Hulu original. It actually premiered at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, on September 15th, 2020, and was given a very limited theatrical release on January 15th, 2021. However, it debuted on Hulu on March 14th, May 14th, excuse me, 2021. And it is a film that explores the investigation and harassment of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. by J. Edgar Hoover and the Federal Bureau of Investigation through newly declassified documents. It's directed by Sam Pollard, who directed the 1987 Oscar-nominated series Eyes on the Prize. And Eyes on the Prize debuted on PBS in 1987. It is a 14-part documentary about the 20th century civil rights movement, particularly in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States. It is a documentary that they still show in history classes, and probably some film schools, particularly documentary film classes, to this day. It is hugely influential. Is MLK FBI as good a documentary as Eyes on the Prize? Frankly, no. But it does explore some interesting avenues about the relationship between Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, particularly the seemingly vindictive actions of J. Edgar Hoover. And I say seemingly because there's not a lot that's particularly well known about J. Edgar Hoover. He created the FBI. He was the director of the FBI for 48 years, literally. And he was able to safeguard a lot of his secrets And even to this day, there's a lot about J. Edgar Hoover we don't know. 
He's an alleged homosexual. He was an alleged homosexual. He was also an alleged transvestite. But that was more legend and hearsay, not fact, or at least not with concrete evidence as opposed to circumstantial evidence. And the same can be said about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. It is very impressive that Dr. Martin Luther King is the only American who has a federal holiday dedicated to him. Think about that. He's the only American who has his own federal holiday in the United States. Now, it used to be that Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday were acknowledged as separate holidays, but some decades back, they decided to combine Washington and Lincoln's birthdays into one holiday, which is President's Day, which people either celebrate by sleeping in late or taking advantage of car deals. But Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a different um, exception. And I do think that in the wake of his death and his legacy, there are parts of him as a human being that are glossed over by history. And I'm not saying that they're glossed over by historians, but the people who really want to dig out the dirt about Martin Luther, Martin, blah, Martin Luther King are mostly white supremacists. They say that he plagiarized his graduate thesis in when he was studying in the seminary at Boston University, and that is not true. He did poorly cite some sources, but he did not plagiarize by any stretch of the imagination. And probably one of the most popular dirty allegations against Martin Luther King Jr. was that he was a womanizer. And this is something that has not been confirmed officially by released FBI documents. What is fact is that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, vicariously through J. Edgar Hoover, did harass Martin Luther King Jr. and his family, particularly his wife, Coretta Scott King, by sending them, by sending him and her audio tape, allegedly of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. having extramarital affairs. And some of these allegations are extreme. Probably the most extreme was that he engaged in a multi-person orgy. But one of the most disturbing allegations, and it is an allegation, was that there was a woman who was allegedly, and I'm going to use the word allegedly a lot, but there was a woman who was allegedly raped by a Baptist minister from Baltimore. And even though Martin Luther King King Jr. did not partake in it, there's audio of him laughing as he's watching it. Now, I use the word allegedly because I don't know how much of these audio tapes are true and how much of these are false. I do know that J. Edgar Hoover's vindictiveness and his willingness to undermine Dr. Martin Luther King because he thought he was a communist certainly undermines the credibility of some of these tapes and they are audio. They're not film or video. And this was back in the 1960s when yes, videotape had been invented, but first of all, the video cassette hadn't been invented. So videotape was still very expensive, more expensive than film. If you can believe it. And secondly, videotape was very hard to set up without somebody noticing the handheld camcorders for videotape were large and bulky in the 60s. So there was no way a, 
a government organization like the FBI would have been able to set that up without somebody noticing. So they had to rely on wiretapping. So that hinders their credibility a little bit because audio tape can easily be doctored. And there's no confirmation from anybody who was closely associated with Dr. King that he did engage in these extramarital affairs. There were people who said that he went into a hotel room with a woman uh, who was also active in the civil rights movement and then came out of that room. But that's circumstantial because you never exactly know what they could have done in there. It doesn't look particularly good. But again, Dr. King himself said that he spent all night talking to this woman about the next day's plans. Again, (laughs) that would be far-fetched, an excuse. But again, there's no way of proving it because if you have the word of somebody who says he went into a hotel room and then came out of it, you don't really have very much. So the disappointing thing about the documentary MLK FBI is the fact that you're told that there are newly declassified documents, but there's nothing here that you can't look up on Wikipedia. In other words, it just seems that it's it's still alleged, his extramarital affairs. It's also alleged that he had ties with communists, although... Well, communism, or at least was a communist sympathizer, if not a promoter of that. But that's what J. Edgar Hoover was afraid that Martin Luther King was. And there's also no evidence that J. Edgar Hoover himself was a racist. He certainly, through his FBI connections, was able to monitor Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, and any Negro that he thought, J. Edgar Hoover thought, was a threat to him, maybe, but to the United States and their freedom, he would probably allege to get more credibility. The problem is, no matter how many documents you declassify, it doesn't tell you the whole story because J. Edgar Hoover was so private a man that he probably shred any documents that made him look bad or probably doctored other documents that would make other civil rights leaders, especially Dr. King, look bad as well. So another thing I didn't like about MLK FBI was the fact that you see a lot of very impressive and extensive archive footage, and you hear people talking about these allegations, but you're only told through subtitles what their names are. You don't know if they knew Dr. King, if they knew Mr. Hoover, if they if they were um, some sort of historian, or maybe a conspiracy theorist who lives in his basement. You don't exactly know. And all they have to show for their testimony is their name. They don't even show their face. So I feel like MLK FBI was taking... A lot of shortcuts here, and it is based on a book that uh, the the name of which I can't find, but it's just not a complete documentary. It just tells you things about Dr. King and the allegations surrounding him, as well as J. Edgar Hoover's vindictiveness that you probably could find out from looking up a Wikipedia article.
So even though they did use an extensive amount of research and some very impressive archive footage, I felt like even the declassified documents didn't really tell you very much. And the movie did not even really reveal what was inside those documents that weren't revealed prior to 2020. And all you get are some narration, which feels like speculation. So MLK FBI is a bit of a disappointment as a documentary, and it does get my rating of a strikeout. Again, it's good for people who might be interested in history and want to learn more about Dr. King's relationship with the FBI, but it doesn't really tell you very much that you wouldn't know from a Wikipedia page or even worse from some conspiracy theorist page. And what good documentaries should do, at least the good ones is separate fact from fiction. And by fiction, that also includes conspiracy theories, speculation, circumstantial evidence, and MLK FBI falls short of doing that. And it's really too bad. I think this movie might fuel some conspiracy theorists, but just because it does that does not mean that it's a good documentary. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for this show, it's now time for me to get into movies that are being released in theaters. Because now that people have been fully vaccinated, not everybody, but a lot of people have been fully vaccinated, I can now indulge on movies that are being released in theaters, but... I'm not entirely abandoning the idea of seeing original movies on streaming because after all, I have access to Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, HBO Max, and Amazon Prime. And as long as I have access to those streaming platforms, I'm going to see as many original movies on those platforms as I possibly can. Otherwise, I'm just wasting my money. With that said... I'm going to go back to the movie theaters because I am fully vaccinated and proud of it. If you're not fully vaccinated yet, hopefully you've made your appointments. I really do hope so. But anyway, getting into the movies that are being released in theaters or also on streaming, unless otherwise specified, here we go. The one big movie, that actually there are two big movies, but one of the big movies that's being released in theaters is Cruella. This is a live-action prequel to 101 Dalmatians that features a young Cruella DeVille who's played by Emma Stone. 
This ought to be interesting. I love Emma Stone as it is. I think she's a fantastic actress and she seems like a cool person too, but I'm very interested. I'm very interested to see her take on a live action Cruella DeVille. The other actress who played a live action Cruella DeVille was of course, Glenn Close, but we saw her basically remaking the 1961 101 Dalmatians movie, as well as the live action sequel, 102 Dalmatians. I've seen 101 Dalmatians, the original animated classic. I haven't actually seen the live action films, but I've seen Glenn Close in the previews and she seemed to jump into it with both feet. And she's always usually a a good actress. Uh, Emma Stone, I've seen Falter a few times, but even though I'm partial to live action remakes of Disney movies, this isn't a live action remake. It's a prequel. So I'm very curious to see what Emma Stone does with this. It also co-stars Emma Thompson, Joel Fry, and Paul Walter Hauser. I'm very interested to see this. It is probably a film I will see. It's going to be released in theaters on May 28th, but it's also going to be released on Disney Plus Premium, which means that if you want to see it on Disney Plus, you have to pay an additional $30. There is no way I'm going to do that. So I'm going to go to the movie theaters and see it, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. The other big film that's going to be premiering in theaters on May 28th is A Quiet Place Part 2. This follows the events at... of the previous movie and the Abbott family with the matriarch, Emily Blunt now face the terrors of the outside world forced to venture into the unknown. They realize the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats that lurk beyond the sand path. Very interesting. I know that John Krasinski is co-starring in this film, I'm not going to tell you his fate in the original movie, but you probably already know that Emily Blunt survives. Does John Krasinski survive? I'm not saying that, but John Krasinski did direct this movie again. And this is one of the many films that would have been released last year. But of course the pandemic happened, which threw the movie industry into an understandable tailspin, but a quiet place part two. I'm very excited to see especially based on the original 2018 movie. And even though I'm not going to get my expectations too high, I try to go into every movie with an open funnel. I will see this movie and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. The other movies that are coming out appear to be in limited release, but I'll just read for you what they are. There's one movie called Endangered Species, which stars Rebecca Romaine, who's a name we haven't heard in a a long time, Philip Winchester, Isabel Bassett, and Michael Johnston. I don't know those other three actors, but I definitely know Rebecca Romaine. But Endangered Species is an intense, action-packed survival adventure about a wealthy American family who travel to the vast African wilderness of Kenya, hoping for a dream vacation filled with excitement, bonding, and a chance to fix the growing rifts within their family. But when their safari vacation is attacked by a rhino protecting her calf, what the family is doing with the calf, I don't know. The family is left stranded miles from help, and their dream vacation turns into a nightmarish struggle for survival in a world 
where they are the bottom of the food chain. Sounds pretty interesting. I don't know if I'm going to see that film, but if it's coming out in theater near me, I might check it out. Another movie that is coming out in limited release, or so it seems, is a movie that's called American Trader, The Trial of Axis Sally. Axis is spelled A-X-I-S, like the Axis powers in World War II. But this is a movie about an American woman named Mildred Gillers who broadcast Nazi propaganda during World War II, presumably in America. She was dubbed Axis Sally by the American GIs, who simultaneously loved and hated her. The story plunges the viewer into the dark underbelly of the Third Reich's hate-filled propaganda machine, Sally's eventual capture, and subsequent trial for treason in Washington, D.C. after the war. I have never heard of this kind of story. It's reminiscent of a story that Kurt Vonnegut wrote called Mother Night, but Kurt Vonnegut's story, which was eventually adapted into a movie starring Nick Nolte and John Goodman, was about an FBI agent who infiltrated the Nazis, but also broadcast Nazi propaganda so that he wouldn't be caught. And the irony was, even though he was fighting the Nazis, there were other people, including Americans, who thought he was a hero because of what he was preaching, even though he didn't mean it. I'd like to see Mother Night eventually, or at least I'd like to read the book by Kurt Vonnegut, because Kurt Vonnegut is amazing. But Axis Sally seems to be about a real person. And she's played in this movie by Meadow Williams, who I'm not familiar with, but the star of this movie is actually Al Pacino. So I would love to see this movie a lot more than Endangered Species, but if it's coming out in a theater near me, I might check it out. But if not, I'll just forget it. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. I discussed the movies that will be released in theaters on May 28th, 2021, and it's now time for me to get into the movies that, are, that will be premiering on several popular podcasting platforms, excuse me, several streaming platforms. I got some of my messages mixed up there. Uh, on the week of May 23rd through May 28th, 2021. So we're going to start with Netflix and the movie Home, which is an animated movie, is going to be appearing on Netflix on Tuesday, May 25th. And Home is a movie that features the um, uh, voice acting talent of 
Rihanna, Jim Parsons, and Steve Martin. It's a pretty good movie, and I definitely thought that for somebody who hadn't done voice acting before, Rihanna actually did a really good job in the film, in particular because she was in her late 20s when she recorded the voice of a character who is less than 13 years old. But Home is a fun movie for the whole family. I've seen it before. I've actually reviewed it on the show, but I'm not going to be reviewing it for next week's show. I'm just telling you that it is what's going to be on Netflix on Tuesday, May 25th. And there are actually three films that will be premiering on Netflix on Wednesday, May 26th, and all of them are Netflix original. Uh, originals, excuse me, plural. Uh, the first one is a film that's called Baggio, the divine ponytail. Um, let me see if I can find any information on this. This is a film that is fictional, not documentary, and it is a foreign film. What makes a ponytail divine though? Let me find out. This is a biographical film about Italian footballer, Roberto Baggio, a man who inspired entire generations to play football. And by football, I mean soccer. A unique footballer capable of thrilling fans all over the world. So there you go. It is a, it's not, it's sort of a docudrama, I think, but it's, it's probably one of those films that I will see. But again, I've seen some movies about football players, international football players, I should say, And since I don't follow football or soccer, I can't really get into them as much, but I might give that movie a chance. But there's another film that is a documentary that will be premiering on Netflix the same day. It's called High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. This sounds like a pretty good documentary because I've had some African-American cuisine while living here in Nashville. And, oh, there's actually a movie that stars Sid Haig, which is called High on the Hog, but that's not the same movie. This one is a 2021 movie that is a documentary, and it is about, it it's, makes the argument, black food is American food, which it might be. Chef and writer Stephen Satterfield traces the delicious moving through lines from Africa to Texas in this docuseries. Okay, so it's telling me that it is not a documentary, but it's a docu-series. I might give that one a chance, particularly because I love good food no matter where it comes from. And I will make it a point to let you know what I think on next week's show. The last movie that's going to be premiering on Wednesday, uh, May 26th, I almost said January, on Netflix is one that's called Nail Bomber Manhunt. And I think... This movie is about the Boston Marathon bomber. I don't know for sure, but let me check it out for you. Nail Bomber Manhunt, because there was a week-long, nearly week-long manhunt for the uh, Boston Marathon bomber. But actually, this one is about the 1999 London bombings that targeted minority communities and the race to find the far-right extremist behind them. Interestingly enough, I remember a lot about the year 1999. I don't remember this story, but this sounds like an amazing documentary. I'm not saying it's going to be amazing, but I'm, I am saying that I will make it a point to see this film and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. 
On Thursday, May 27th, there is one film that's going to be premiering. There are two series and one comedy special, but I don't review comedy specials because the comedian's either funny or he or she is not. But the original film that I might check out is one that's called Blue Miracle. It certainly has a catchy name, but this one is at least advertised as a film, not a documentary. And it looks like it is a Netflix original and it stars Dennis Quaid and several other actors. And it's about a guardian who, in order to save their cash strapped orphanage, his kids and him partner with a washed up boat captain for a chance to win a lucrative fishing competition. Hmm. Sounds pretty interesting. I would, I'm definitely going to make a point to see that. And I don't think it's, it's one of those faith-based films, but even if it was, I even give faith-based films a chance because there are some good faith-based films out there. Not all of them, but there are some. So anyway, on Friday, May 28th, that's when Netflix has one film premiering. And that might not seem like a lot, and it isn't, but there are also two other uh, series that are going to be um, spinning off into um, new seasons, including The Kaminsky Method, which is one of the more popular Netflix shows. But the one film that is going to be premiering on Netflix is one that's called Doggone Trouble. Yeah, doggone is an expression that not a lot of people use these days, but unfortunately, I can't tell you what this film is about because at least IMDb isn't telling me anything. But, oh, here's something. It is an animated film, and apparently it came out in 2019, or at least it was made in 2019, but it's premiering as a Netflix original this week. And it is about the privileged life of a pampered dog named Trouble, which is turned upside down when he gets lost and must learn to survive on the big city streets. Uh, the, the actors who uh, provide their voices for this uh, animated film include Big Sean, the rapper, Lucy Hale, Wilmer Valderrama, Snoop Dogg, and Betty White, amongst others. I'd be interested to see this one, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. So that's it with films that will be premiering on Netflix this uh, the week of May 23rd through May 28th. Let me see what is going to be appearing on Amazon Prime. There's actually a series that's going to be premiering on Amazon Prime. No movies, though. It's called Panic, and I can't tell you about that, or at least I won't tell you, because this is a show about movies, not about TV series. Nothing personal against uh, TV series. But let me tell you what's going to be premiering on Disney Plus on Friday, May 28th, because unlike Netflix, Disney Plus and several other um, streaming platforms only premiere new content on Fridays. So I told you earlier about the movie Cruella. It's going to be premiering with Premiere Access, which means if you have a Disney Plus subscription, you have to pay an additional $30 to see the movie Cruella, 
Whether or not you want to, that's entirely up to you. But other than that, there is actually one short film collection. So it's one short film after the other. That's called Launchpad. This is a Disney Plus original. Now, I don't know if Launchpad means this is a way for young filmmakers to launch their movie careers or because it's Disney, if it's named after Launchpad McQuack and there's going to be a DuckTales themed uh, short in this short film collection. But I will probably see Launchpad. Yeah, I was a big fan of DuckTales and Darkwing Duck growing up and Launchpad McQuack was for a while one of my favorite Disney characters. He's still a cool character. But anyway, not not getting too lost in the subject. Launchpad is a collection of short films I will try to seek out. I can't guarantee that I'll be reviewing for the, them for next week's show, but I will give it my best shot. So let's see what else is, is premiering. On HBO Max, let's see if anything is premiering there on the week of May 23rd through May 28th. Uh, there are a couple of films that are going to be making an appearance on HBO Max or HBO in general, but none of them are movie originals. The movie Cinderella Man, starring Russell Crowe, Renee Zellweger, and Paul Giamatti, will be appearing on HBO Max on Tuesday, May 25th. That's an excellent film, and Paul Giamatti especially is great in it. On Wednesday, May 26th, the Curious George movie, which features the voice acting talent of Will Ferrell, will be appearing on HBO Max. I might just see that movie for fun because I remember when it came out, I was in college. If if I was married and had a kid or two or six, I would probably take them to see Curious George. I do remember Jack Johnson did the soundtrack for Curious George. Other than that, I didn't get to see the movie, but I will I will kind of break my rule here about the films that will be premiering May 23rd to May 28th, and I'll tell you about a movie that will be premiering on HBO Max on Saturday, May 29th. This is an HBO original, and it's called Oslo, as in the capital of Norway. So Oslo is a movie that is an original, and it stars Ruth Wilson and Andrew Scott, and it recounts the true life, previously secret, back-channel negotiations in the development of the pivotal 1990s Oslo Peace Accords between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. This sounds very intriguing, particularly if you're into world... Uh, affairs. And the fact that the Israelis and the Palestinians are still fighting is infuriating because this kind of event should have put an end to that. But I guess it goes to show you that it just doesn't work out that way sometimes. But Oslo is not a film I will be reviewing for you for next week's show because it's a little too late, but maybe the week after because I am very intrigued to see how this movie comes out. 
Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.